Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. I'm not sure this uh, this guest needs much of an introduction. Everybody, I think, everybody knows who Anderson Cooper is, but just in case you don't, uh, he hosts two hours a night on uh, on CNN. He's written a bunch of books, including a, a memoir and also uh, a book about his relationship with his mother, Gloria Vanderbilt, who you may also have heard of. Um, we're going to talk about their relationship <laughs> a lot in this in this interview because she's fascinating. Um, and he uh, does incredible stories on 60 Minutes. Uh, at, speaking of which, several years ago, he was assigned to do a story on 60 Minutes about meditation. And it was a great story. I was so excited to see that 60 Minutes was covering meditation. And Anderson ended up uh, embracing the practice for himself uh, and getting pretty into it. And in fact, he's going to be um, co-hosting an event um, uh, in New York City called Mindfulness in America, put on by the folks who do Wisdom 2.0, which is uh, a, in fact, the, the, the guy who organizes Wisdom 2.0, uh, Soren Gordhammer, is a previous guest on this podcast. You can go back and check him out. But they basically, uh, he basically does these events all uh, in, in San Francisco, New York, and elsewhere, talking about the... Uh, overlap between meditation traditions and uh, technology slash business. So Anderson, that's a long way of saying, got pretty into meditation, and he's a really, really fascinating guy, somebody who I've admired for a long time. I, in fact, uh, write about him a little bit in 10% Happier because when I was hired to as a 28-year-old whippersnapper uh, to come here to ABC News, I was hired to take his job. He was at that time the anchor of uh, of an overnight broadcast we do, and, and then I arrived in New York to take his job, and he decided he didn't want to leave, and that's what ultimately allowed me to go on to be a correspondent for Peter Jennings. Um, so Anderson uh, has has played a role in my story, and and his story is really fascinating in terms of him being on the front line of the news, but also quite wrenching um, his personal story. So here we go. Here's Anderson Cooper. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Really cool to see you, man. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, it's really my pleasure. It. It's my pleasure. So, so um, how did you I get... was expecting it to be a little more zen in here. No, no, no. You know, we, no some we... chimes or something. Well, thank you for pointing out that I'm a huge hypocrite. Um, <laughs> um, how did you get into meditation? I did a... I had an assignment for 60 Minutes for um, to do a piece on mindfulness and... You know, it's hard to do a story about people meditating because it's people meditating. Kind of boring, yeah. Yeah, so we ended up going to a retreat that John Kabat-Zinn was giving in um, in California, Northern California. And I, we decided that I would participate in the retreat. It was like a three-day retreat. So this wasn't your idea to do the story? No. Uh, they had a, pro- uh, a producer at Six Minutes had approached me. But it, it was interesting because I had, started, I had just started reading about mindfulness because I've always been interested in meditation. And I just never – it's like yoga. I'd like to try it, but I just don't really know how to start. So with mindfulness, it was the same thing. I didn't really know how to start. And I remember buying a DVD once years ago, like a meditation DVD and never watching it. (laughs) Um, And yeah, so I, uh, so I, I, I was eager to do the piece and um, I actually only lasted a day and a half at this retreat because I, all phones were, you know, they take away your phones um, and we didn't want to, you know, have the crews upset the actual retreat. We, you know, it was a real retreat for people and it was a lot of people from Silicon Valley and, um, cause John does a, a thing out there every year, um, f- for a similar group. And, um, my producer got a call 
that the guy who used to own the Clippers. Oh, yeah, 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 that's right. That uh, story. Had agreed to talk to me. Yeah. And so I had to leave this mindfulness thing to go to the house of somebody who was not very mindful. Right. The guy who would, he said nasty things about Magic Johnson. Yes. Because his to me. girlfriend. Yes. To, yes. 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 Yeah. But it, but it was interesting to, I mean, to go from this, you know, very, uh, really interesting retreat, which I was really getting into, and then suddenly be thrust into this very completely different thing. So I decided to go back. Then I just started getting books by John Kabat-Zinn. Uh, like, Can I just stop for one second? I just want yeah. to explain to people. Sure. Who John, I, I feel like I explain this on every podcast because um, his name is always being dropped. But he is a former MIT microbiologist who, or molecular biologist, one of the two, who basically invented modern secular mindfulness. He doesn't like the word secular, but that's what it is. Yeah. And, and you know, he was doing it, I think, initially for patients in the hospital who were suffering from pain, chronic mm-hmm. pain. Mm-hmm. Um, he's been doing it for, uh, you know, I think at least since the 70s. Mm-hmm. And I really liked him when I was doing this, this thing. And um, so I went back to for a retreat by myself. For, How many days? It was only three or four days. I think it was just three days. And it's hard for me to take, you know, chunks of time off. And then I'd signed up for a week-long retreat um, last June, and I had to I had to pull out because uh, some I can't even remember what story was happening. So, have you kept up a daily practice? Yeah, I tried to. I mean, I wouldn't say I'm. I, I you know I would cop to not doing it every day. I what to me the biggest effect it's had is not so much. I mean, there's the sitting part of it, the practice of it, ideally every day, sometimes twice a day, but for the most part. Um, that I, I get a lot out of. But what I get the most out of is the change it has made in my day-to-day life, in my hour-to-hour life. And I feel like the reason I was interested in mindfulness in the first place is like I've been reporting for 20-something years, 23 years. I started in 92. And I don't know where the last 23 years have gone. I mean, I've had incredible experiences, but I often am not appreciating them until – I'm looking back at them in retrospect, like, oh, that was a that was a really good trip. And I'm always, as in the news business, always thinking about what is coming next mm-hmm. and never being really present in the moment. And that really started to get to me. And this something that, that John, John actually said at the first retreat, which was I, I'm not quoting him right, but, you know, that, that everybody wants to live longer. But this is actually a way to feel like you have lived longer. If it doesn't extend your life, which it very well may, you know, with, with health effects, it, you, are, you are present for more moments of your life and thereby you are living longer. You are living richer and you are living, you're experiencing your life in a way that you might not otherwise. I think I am, I fully agree with that. Um... So, so for me, the, med- the meditative thing is I try to, make a lot of activities meditations. So if I, for instance, uh, if I'm in a car driving, uh, you know, from or riding in a car, I will not be on my phone. I will not um, be checking my emails. I will be, I'm riding the car. So like instead of multitasking, I now monotask. I only do one thing at a time. So if I'm walking down the street, I'm walking down the street. I'm not walking down the street looking at my phone. If I'm, you know, eating dinner, I'm eating dinner um, and I am, that's what I'm doing. And I'm not eating dinner while I used to literally in a hotel room, you know, after a day of shooting, I'd be in my hotel room, be watching a movie on television. I would be eating room service 
And I'd be checking my BlackBerry and then, you know, maybe talking on the phone. And it's just ridiculous. And so it doesn't lead to any happiness. It doesn't lead to, you know, the bombardment of information. It doesn't lead, at least for me, it's not leading to to a betterment or an enrichment. I, I fully agree. I'm going to say a bunch of stuff leading up to a question. Um, I will have said this when I record the intro, which I do afterwards, that, that I'm just a huge fan of the of your work. And, and I watch it's just the sheer volume of stuff you do. The two-hour show nightly on CNN, all these amazing pieces you do for 60 Minutes. You do stuff with Andy. Don't you do a tour with Andy Cohen? Yes, on weekends. You, uh, you um, had this incredible documentary with your mom, yeah. which was called – what was it called again? Um, Nothing Left Unsaid. Nothing Left Unsaid, which was incredible. It's available yes. on HBO, and everybody should watch it because it's really moving. Um, how, how do you do all of that without just – being a, a chicken with no head. How do you do all that? And is, can can you feel meditation making all that volume of work doable? It, it makes it, it. It certainly helps. It doesn't make it doable, but it definitely definitely helps because at least I, if I'm, you know, I wrote this book with my mom, so I would for the hours in that day that I was writing, that's what I was doing. I mean, obviously, look, sometimes you know, work intercedes, and you have to look at your phone, you have to read read your messages and stuff. But um, but by trying to focus on what I'm actually doing when I'm doing it, I, I just find I'm able to actually do more and do more effectively. Uh, I do a better job at what I'm doing each time. But I also um, – I just – I enjoy it more mm-hmm. or, or I remember it more. I mean it's like, you know, that fact that I can't remember the name of the guy, the Clippers guy um, who I interviewed – uh, you know, that's telling to me. I mean, yes, I've interviewed lots and lots of people, but, um, you know, I, I want to be present in any conversation I'm having, in any interview I'm having. I think that's especially important to be present. And it's very easy to do that, you know, when you're doing tons of interviews and, you know, it's very easy to sometimes just, um, you know, sleepwalk through whatever your activity is. Absolutely. Automatic pilot is always there for you. Right. Um, and th- that's why they call – one translation of the word mindfulness is remembering. Hmm. It's like remembering to wake up and do what you're actually doing right now. Yeah, I mean, I think it was John, you know, who, who alluded to the – you know, when you're driving in a car, I and mean, it's an experience everyone's had, and you're mm-hmm. you're going from one place to another, and, and you're, you get to the place, and you have no memory of how you actually got mm-hmm. there. Like, you don't really remember the two-hour drive. Mm-hmm. Um and I just feel like that's what I have spent a, done a lot in the last twenty years. You've had, I mean, this in the in the documentary that I mentioned, which was also a book. I, I failed to point out. Um, you talk about some really heavy stuff that happened in your family, including mm-hmm. uh, the, the death of your older brother. Is right, right. Yeah, he was two years older. Yeah, who who had t- he took his own life. Yeah, um, yeah, he died by suicide. And you were were you there? No, my mom was there. Mom was there. I uh, I was actually in D.C. It was uh, it was July twenty second, nineteen eighty eight. And um, he was two years older. He had graduated from Princeton. And he was working in American Heritage uh, History Magazine uh, and was doing writing for commentary. And, um, yeah, he, he came to my mom's house. And he had – in the last month or two, he had had some, some issues and he clearly was depressed. He had started to see a therapist. And we thought things were fine and he had sort of pretended that things were fine. Um, and he came to my mom's house and took a nap and woke up in a disoriented state and um 
my mom, he ran upstairs. Uh, we had a duplex apartment, and he ran up through my room out into the balcony. My mom ran after him, um, and they, he sat on the balcony and while well, my mom tried to talk him off. And then he, um, he just turned around. He didn't jump. He actually, my mom describes this as like a gymnast. He sort of flung himself around so that he was holding on to the balcony with his hands and, and uh, you know, he was, his legs were, were dangling. His whole body was over the balcony, and then he just let go. Has, has having a practice, um, do, you, do you find that you confront some of this stuff when you're on the cushion? I don't, I, I don't think so. I mean, obviously ideas come in your head, and when you've experienced a loss, particularly, you know, my dad died when I was 10 years old, all that stuff, it never leaves you. I mean, it, you know, people in TV use that horrible word closure, which mm-hmm. is just, I think, should just be banned, that word. It's just, you know, for anyone who's experienced loss, particularly early loss, there is no such thing as closure. I mean, you know, wounds heal, but the scars remain whether or not people can see them. Um, but I don't find, with the practice, I, you know, when if I'm sitting, I actually try to, when I find myself starting to think, I try to just return to my breath and you know, and sort of just gently come back to the breath and not get sucked into those thoughts. Not because I'm trying to avoid it, but I mean, I spent, you know, I think about my brother, I think about his death every single day. And it's like, you know, the violence of it is so antithetical to who he was. I mean, it's just so, to this day, is so shocking to me. Um, it's still like a, I mean, there are days where it's just like a punch in the gut. And Still. Still, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Almost, what, I'm not great at math, 30 years later? Yeah, in uh, July 1988. So, yeah, this will be almost 30 years. It's incredible to me that it's been that long, that uh, that I've lived longer without him than I lived with him in my life. It's so bizarre to me. Uh, Same thing with my dad. I mean, that my dad died in 1978 is crazy to me. Sounds like both of of those deaths are still pretty fresh with you. I think they are, absolutely. I mean, they they radically changed... My, my my dad's death radically changed who I was and became. Um, I think the the person I was before I was ten was much more extroverted and outgoing and funny, and um, I was probably kind of a more interesting person than the person after he died. I became much more introverted. I became very concerned about survival. I became very concerned about uh, finances, like how I was going to make a living, who was going to support people in my family. Um, everything like who was there weren't you know uh, my mom had didn't have a real experience of being a parent and so my dad had been very much the parent so suddenly I was you know in a very different circumstance at home and it was me and my brother and my mom uh, and my mom has talked about it now you know she drank and you know there was a it was a huge issue when I was a kid and um, I I became very self-reliant I became very I started working you know, uh, when I was 11 as a child model, which is really cheesy. Uh, but I could bill $75 an hour and I saved money. And I was obsessed well, with... Well, why did you need money? I was obsessed with how people made a living. And I was, uh, you but know... But your, your mother's last Yeah, my mom has... Yeah, yeah. She, my, yeah, I mean, my mom obviously came from a very wealthy family and had made a lot of money on her own, made more money than she had inherited. But she and my dad both made clear to me my dad came from a very poor background, and they both, as a kid, made clear to me that um, I would be, you know, through college, would be paid for, and then after that, I'd be on my own. So there was no, like, there's no, like, trust or anything like that, or, you know, 
you know, yeah, like no trust fund and, and all that. And I'm glad I grew up knowing that and, and because it um, – I think most of the people who sort of inherit money in that way don't really um, – I think it sucks the initiative out of a lot yeah. of people. And I'm sure um, you know people like that. Yeah, and I think it confuses people more than anything. And so I – I like the I like the clarity of knowing I need to take care of myself from a very very young age. So, so in, in many ways, you've kind of been a, a, as a journalist like a role model for me from a distance. I mean, one very concrete way, I took your I was hired right. to take your job uh, back in the year two thousand. World News um, Now, World News Now, the overnight news broadcast that's still going on ABC. Uh, but also because you were really one of the first anchors to to really speak publicly about your stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember for a while they were calling you the emo anchor because right, after yeah, yeah. after Katrina you had gotten 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 emotional on the air during right. Katrina, but it was also that you wrote a book subsequently. Right, what's it called again? It's called Dispatches from the Edge. Dispatches, where which you talked about your personal life, and you're talking right. very candidly and frankly and movingly now. Um, is had have you has that uh, how have you gotten comfortable doing that, and have you felt that in any way it's been a risk? Yeah, you know, I I, I mean it wasn't really a conscious thing. To start doing it, I, I actually hadn't done. I'm, I'm pretty the. Mo- I'm kind of the. Mo- I mean, I'm incredibly introverted, and I rarely share things about myself with, you know, even people I've known for a long period of time. Um, but for me, the experience of being, um, you know, I started to realize when I was in my mid twenties, I started to think back after my brother died. I mean, I started to really think. Okay, whatever the strategy he and I have been using to get through to being adults, uh, that strategy did not work for him. Mm-hmm. And so I need to come up with a strategy that is uh, different than the strategy we were using. And the strategy we were using was not talking about anything with each other or anybody else about what was going on. And so I made a conscious choice to, you know, uh, start talking to, the, to a few people who I trusted and, and could rely on. And I re- I started in my 20s starting to look back at the path I had taken thus far and realizing that there was a certain continuity to it, that there was a reason after college, you know, I took a year off, didn't really know what to do, and then got a job. I tried to get a job at ABC, tried to get a job at CBS as a desk assistant, couldn't get it. And uh, a, fr- a kid I went to co- uh, high school with named Colin O'Neill was a fact checker at this thing called Channel One, mm-hmm. which was a news program seen in about half the schools in America. He was leaving that job, I think, to become a producer. I took, I got, I, I applied, I got the job. And after six months of that, I realized I want to be in the field. I want to go to combat zones. I want to go where real things are happening. And um, that's what I did. A, a colleague at, at Channel One made a fake press pass for me. <laughs> I borrowed a camera. And I snuck into Burma, hooked up with some students fighting the Burmese government, shot a story, went to school in Vietnam for a while, then ended up in Somalia in the early days of the famine there in like August of, I think it was, 92. And I realized this is what I want to do. And... Um, uh, I, and I, so I became like their Channel One's foreign correspondent. But but I realized a lot of that was about not being sure I could survive and wanting to be around other people who where life and death was very much an issue, where people weren't just having like happy talk at a dinner party about facial moisturizers. They were dealing every second with, with life and death and that the the molecules of the air were charged with um, – were charged and – that conversations were real and people shook your hand hard and they looked you in the eye. And, um, you know, when you're in a, I mean, as you know, when you're in a, a, a combat zone or even just any place where there's been a disaster or all the 
it is stripped away. I mean, it's everything is gutted. It's raw. It's um, it is uh, it's real. And I I liked that. I want I needed that. I wanted that. And that's that's that was the appeal of, and that's why I became a reporter because I just was I just wanted to go to those places. And I would come back home, and for you know a week or two. And then all I wanted to do was go back out somewhere far away, kind of, it wasn't a big, wasn't like the biggest story of the day. I wanted to go to someplace obscure where people's voices weren't being heard. And um, it was as much about sort of trying to survive myself as anything else, I think. But say more about that. You're interested in survival and you weren't sure if you could survive. What, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, I think anytime uh, you have a memory of your family who has... Uh, died by suicide, some, you know, it raises questions about your own stability and your own grasp on, I mean, you know, in many ways I was like my brother and he was smarter than I and more well-read and, um, you know, clearly I, it made me very scared. And I think it's, you know, you look at statistics of people who's, you know, have a loved one who committed suicide, there are, there's a higher chance they will also mm-hmm. die by suicide. And so... Um, yeah. So I, you know, I became very conscious of that and, um, you know, much more thoughtful and um, and also just compelled to, I don't know, I think I was grieving and compelled to be around others who were who were grieving from one thing or another. And I and I felt I didn't say I want to I mean, I certainly didn't enjoy being in, in you know, Somalia or, or seeing people suffering like this, but I felt uh, the ability to communicate and talk to people in the midst of their grief and found it um, powerful. And, and you know, at its best, it helps them, whether it's getting aid supplies in or getting world attention. Um, but often people, even in the midst of grief, people want you to know about the loved one who, who has passed or who got murdered or who got killed in a disaster. They want you to know, you know, that this person is more than how their life ended. Uh, it's interesting to me hear hear you say that that before before we were talking about your meditation practice and you said the real benefit for you is like you feel like you're living your life more fully right. as opposed to being on autopilot, but that it it hasn't had much bearing on this grief with which you still live today. So there are other modalities that you use to deal with that. I don't know. I, I don't know that I deal with it. I mean, um, you know, it's very it is very close to the surface still, and it's and I don't know that that's necessarily a bad thing. I mean, I'm able to function and high, a high function. Well, well yeah, I guess at least, <laughs> at least on television. At least on television, right? <laughs> it's the rest of the day that's the problem. <laughs> Those other 22 hours of the day, um, I'm recovering. Um, but you know, it's it's funny actually. You know, I you mentioned the show I do with Andy Cohen, and it's. We've been doing it for like two years, and it's it's an occasional show. We'll we'll book a theater, um, like I don't know. We have like Wallingford, Connecticut coming up, and Tampa and Dallas and Houston. So we'll book like a three thousand seat theater, and we'll just kibitz on stage. And it's really funny, and people really like it, and, and it does it does really well. And it's incredibly enjoyable for me. You're in front of this audience of three thousand people, and you get an immediate reaction. It's just a lo- fun night out for people. Um, but it is exhausting for me. For Andy, it's like oxygen. I mean, it's like how he spends every hour of his day because he's the most extroverted person I've ever met. He's, he's the, you know, he walks into a room and he's the, everybody, you know, he makes the party and when he leaves, everyone's like, all right, I guess the party's over. Um, <laughs> me, I, like, after being on stage for two hours and then shaking hands with, like, 200 people afterward and taking photographs, I literally need to be quiet in a room for 
uh, for quite some time. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. So talk about this difference, because I don't think people who watch you on television would understand, or even listen to this interview would understand that you're actually seriously introverted. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I I don't think that's that uncommon in the world of TV. I mean, I have met a lot of people. You know, look, um, that, that, you know, first of all, when you're in a television studio, which, you know, unfortunately now I spend a bulk of my time anchoring from a studio, you're looking to it. It's a dark room. It's cold. There's kind of a couple of people milling around behind cameras, but you don't really see them. And that camera is a little tiny piece of glass, and it's a very thin piece of glass, and it transmits um, truth. It, it, the audience can see th- through their television, through that camera lens, whether you're real or not, whether you're being authentic or not, whether you're full of shit or not. And um, and and I, I love that. Um, but it, to me, it's very intimate, and it's very much uh, like here, like sitting just talking to you. That's what it has. It has no reality that you know. However many people are watching and. Um, you know, they're, they're going to tweet about what I say. It has no reality for me. But when you're on a stage in front of thousands of people, that suddenly, you you know, it's a different kind of reality. Um, I'm not sure if that would answer your question. But yeah, so I'm, yeah. So to me, being introverted, it's not at odds with looking to a camera. It's the same thing in the field when you're in the middle of, of a place. You know, it's so real. I mean, say you're in I mean, I'll use the example of Somalia in 92, the first time I was there. I was in this town called Baidoa, and, I mean, just, it's, it's, it's unbelievable what's happening. Or Haiti after the earthquake, you know, it's, un, it's unfathomable what you are seeing around you. And um, to turn and just talk to a camera, it just feels like the most natural thing to me. Um, and it doesn't feel, it has nothing, that being introverted, there's an intimacy to it, Um David Borman, who created World News Now, is a great TV producer. I, th- I think one of the things he once said was, you know, you're not looking at the camera lens. You're looking through the camera. You're looking mm-hmm. to the back of the camera. Mm-hmm. And I totally understand what he means by that. And I think that's, um, that it's a connection without their needing to shake hands with 50 people. It's a very intimate connection. And that appeals to me. So do you think you would be different in terms of your comportment and chattiness 
if I was sitting across from you at a dinner party as opposed to sitting across from you now with all these mics and doing an interview? I would not go to a dinner party. I would not? No. I, I, I mean, I have to at some point. I mean, yeah, sometimes I have to. But, like, I drive home at night after work and I see all these people sitting in, like, outdoor cafes and during the summer. And the thought of doing that is such a drain on me. I, I actually did go out with Andy to dinner with three friends recently. And we had to sit in an outdoor cafe because for some reason he thinks sitting in an outside cafe in New York is nice at night. I think it's awful. <laughs> I don't get why people do it. I mean, it's people honking and, you know, anyway. Yeah, but that's not the problem for you. The problem is the social It's the social thing. Yeah. All right. Because what I don't know what to talk about. Like, uh, yeah, I can do it. I mean, I can, I can put my face on. You know, it's the weird thing about being on TV is walking down the street. People say hi to me all day long. And I say hi back and I'm, I'm engaged and I enjoy talking with people. But it is not – it does not come naturally to me. You know, I think you get the sense with, like, President Clinton that <laughs> he loves, you know, shaking hands. He'll spend hours with people he doesn't know. For me, it's it's work. And so it, when – if I don't have to do it, like, if I don't have to go to a dinner party, I'm, I will be at home. I'll watch – binge watching, you know, Narcos or whatever it is, um, season three, and, um, you know, just – Existing. I just started watching it. Any good? Narcos. The, I've I've seen season episodes. Yeah. one and two, but it's yeah, three good. Three's good. It's not as good as the first two, because um, you know Escobar and the actor that was such he a compelling character. But I, but it's definitely it's definitely worthwhile. Ozark is good too. I, I saw that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, my wife and I. We're not married, so like there's nothing That's else to do. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, let me ask you about your mom because she's. I mean, I've never met her, but she's an amazing character in right. this documentary. Could you ever imagine her meditating? Yeah, I could. I, yeah, actually, I mean, I think she does in her own way. I don't. It's not a, painting, an, any yeah. kind of formal thing. But she spends, um, and I've always known this about her. She lives in her head. I mean, she is. Con- she for the her entire life has been replaying the events of her childhood, uh, and in her artwork, in her painting, she has been repainting and restaging moments from her from her past, mostly from her childhood, in order to try to make sense of them. And she had as screwed up a childhood as you could have. I mean, she, at, at, you know, for a very wealthy family, they were the most screwed up you can imagine. And she was, you know, her dad died when she was an infant. Her mother took her overseas, never saw her. She was raised by a governess. At the age of 10, she was brought back and during the height of the Depression. Uh, there was a mammoth court case, uh, a custody battle between her aunt and her mother, to uh, have her removed from the care of her mother, even though her mother never even saw her, so she wasn't really caring for her. Um, it was called the trial of the century at the time. Um, and, you know, I mean, she's had one, you know, she had epic love affairs and huge losses and deaths. And, um, you know, she she lived through the, the, the death of my brother in front of her, which, you know, is a hard thing for anybody to, to live through and be able to move forward with. And so she uh, she's very much in her head, um, and but she yeah and she's I mean she's extraordinary so I could see her I in a way she meditates but I don't, not in a formal sit down sort of sense I think she she I think she is constantly I don't know how present she is always in conversations and things um, but she is certainly you can see the the dialogue going on in her head. She also seems open to new ideas. Oh, completely. Yeah. I mean, she's the mo- she's the most youthful person I've ever met. She's 93 now and I feel older than her. I mean, she <laughs> she has friends who are way younger and like She would go to an outdoor cafe, I think. Yeah, she'd be fine with it. Yeah, she she would go anywhere, really. I mean, she's up for pretty much anything. Um 
and she has friends like from all walks of life who are really fascinating people and and you know she uh she's just a, a, a really compelling I, she just joined instagram uh which because in 93 you start to get isolated a lot of her older friends have died she's got a, a bunch of younger friends but you know i think she was feeling isolated so i thought oh you know what i'll get her on instagram and she you know it took a long time to figure explain it to her and sort of show her but once she got into it she's now obsessed so she actually has an Instagram account at Gloria Vanderbilt. She also has an Instagram account for her studio, which she posts like two paintings uh, a week that she sells. And she just loves seeing, you know, the fact that, you know, I got her to join and within two weeks or three weeks, she had 130,000 followers. She cannot believe that that many people would be at all interested in anything she does. And the fact that, you know, she puts a work up for sale on this, you know, Glory Vanderbilt studio account, and it sells right away. She cannot believe it. Like, it just, it's like magic to her. That's great. Yeah. Um, a couple more questions, then I'll let you go. Um, Wisdom 2.0, that's the, uh, the, 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 one of the reasons yes. we wanted to have you on, because you're going to be, I guess, co-hosting? What's it? What? I guess. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I mean, I just agreed to do whatever they wanted me to do, and because and, the guys behind it uh, were involved in the retreats that I've gone to, and so they approached me about it, and I was like, yeah, sure. I mean, I'm not like, you know, I'm not making any money off or anything. I'm just there, and... I'm going to be doing. So, I do an, I'm going to do an interview with John Kabat-Zinn. I think an interview with the. Uh, I think I'm interviewing the guy who created uh, Headspace, the app. Um, another sort of tech guy who uh, has some thoughts. I'm also really interested in how technology is, uh, you know, destroying us. And um, I just did a piece on 60 Minutes about that, yeah. how, you know, some people in the tech world are concerned about how technology is manipulating us and manipulating, you know, our our brains. Basically, so, so Wisdom Two Point I should say a little bit about it, is kind of this annual. You you went to I've the, never been to. I one. thought you went to the one, or your cruise went to the one in, yes, in my, yes. San Francisco. Right, that was for the sixty minutes. Right, piece. it was part of the sixty minutes piece. I did. Right. I couldn't make it that day. I remember watching that piece. I was in the hospital. My son had been born, and it was on TV, and I was so excited uh-huh. that the meditation was on um, on sixty minutes. Uh, so Wisdom Two Point is this kind of annual. Actually, Soren Gord. Hammer, who's the founder of it, has right. been on this podcast before. Uh, it's this annual meditation slash technology confab. The big one is in San Francisco, San Francisco yeah. in I think February or March, and but they do a New York version now, and it's coming up soon. Yeah, I think October eighth, ninth. Yeah, I think. Yeah. yeah, and um, yeah. So it's it's over the course of two days. I think downtown. I think around NYU, um, and. You know, I mean, Soren's really organized it, and there's a lot of you're you're. I'm doing something. Yeah, you're doing something. I don't know what I'm doing. Right, Um, and it's you know, I think it's just for anybody who's interested in mindfulness, interested in meditation, or whether they have experience with it or not. And it's just some really fascinating people. I mean, John Kabat-Zinn to hear him talk, I, I, you know, I just uh, I learned so much. His book, um, wherever Wherever we go, there you are, are, which is you know hugely popular. I don't love the title, but um, <laughs> but the book itself, I've like I reread it all the time. It's, it's one of those books, book. yeah. And it just it's such an easy introduction to meditation. You know, I've got his app on the you know his meditation app. I listen to, um, so I'm very happy to be interviewing him. I would be remiss if I didn't ask about this. How much more stressful is your job in the age of Trump? And does meditation help with that at all? It does. It's um, be- yes because. Again, I mean, this last two years have felt like a, just a whirlwind, yeah. and um, and it's a whirlwind where 
you know, the things that got me interested in news were, frankly, being overseas and being out in the field. And then as one gets older and, you know, you anchor more and certainly now, you know, the politics takes up the bulk of the two hour newscast I do every single night. And it's it's um, it's fascinating. I'm glad people are engaged. And I think it's uh, fascinating and, and, you know, compelling and uh, difficult time for this country, and there's a lot of things that, that that all of us as a society are wrestling with, and it's you know to have a front row seat of that is is an extraordinary thing. Um, the amount of heat you guys take, especially as yeah. CNN, we all take heat in the media. Right. I think actually some of that is healthy, uh, keeps us on our toes. Sure. But CNN is really taken, and so yeah, I mean to you know have the president leading chance with you know entire stadiums full of people, and um, you know it seems. I, I mean, I get his strategy on it. I mean, I think you know. I don't think he actually believes that. I, I think. I mean, um, I think it's part of a. You know, it's part of his his strategy, and I get it. Um, and I don't worry too much about it. I mean, I think all of us at CNN are we just keep our heads down and keep doing our job. I mean, to me, the answer to that uh, is journalism. Just and then there's more criticism, and the answer to that is just more journalism and just. You know, doing the best you can, being as honest and as fair as possible and moving forward and, and just keep at it. And and I've never had more people come up to me. Um, and it's not just me. It's I mean, I'm sure it happens to you, but I know to everybody at CNN, if, if somebody on the street recognizes them and say, like, you know, what, keep at it. Just thank you for what you're doing. You know, just keep moving, keep doing it. And it's not like they're saying that to to me or anything, but I think it's just the. I think there's a increasing understanding of the role of journalism. And, and I think we saw that in the wake of Katrina. And I think, you know, it's – I think there's a – there is an increasing appreciation for the importance of reporting and accurate – you know, having places where there is accurate information coming from. Uh, I like to, at the end of a podcast, give people a chance to promote anything. Uh, <laughs> I don't know that you're promoting anything specifically. Uh, no. If people want to learn more about you, where can they do that? I don't know. I mean, I'm Twitter. on. I'm on TV tw- two hours a night. So there's. <laughs> you do have a Twitter. I mean, I'm Twitter. On, I'm trying to stay away from Twitter. Oh, you are. I mean, I yeah. I have like eight million people following me on Twitter, and I feel bad because I'm really not that engaged with it. I, I've I've consciously stepped back from it because you were getting snippy with folks, or I, I just find it it doesn't lead to certainly if you're interested in mindfulness, be, it's it's another stream coming at you yeah. that. You get so wrapped up in. I mean, if you start to uh, like, uh, you know, I obviously I look at Twitter for the people I follow because I get a lot of news and information there, and it's great to get different viewpoints. But if you're reading the comments, um, you know, for every if you get 40 comments that are great, and you get one person who you know says you are the antichrist or communist or whatever it is, um, you know, or or you know, a lot of worse uh, stuff <laughs> is thrown. You know, it it you start to you harp on that on that one thing, and you sort of get caught up in this feeling like, oh, I have to. It's like you know, John Kabat-Zinn. One of the things images he talks about is uh, when you're meditating. You know, there's a waterfall, and there's this stream of ideas, um, and in this case, it's information. And I sort of you know, you view this Twitter stream, and that through meditation, you're kind of stepping through. Uh, through the waterfall into like a cave behind it and you're turning around and you're looking back out at through it and you're looking at the stream and yep. sort of you're observing it come and you're letting it go. Um, like I don't need to add another stream. I already got enough going on. I don't need another like a second waterfall behind the first one. So I'm much happier. I mean, you're talking about being 10% happier. I'm like 40% happier 
Um, just from uh, cutting back on Twitter alone. Just from cutting back on Twitter. Cutting back on, on all social media. I mean, I really, I've cut back on Facebook hugely. Uh, I, mean, I have a public Facebook page, which I do post to, but I don't use Facebook with my friends. Um, I don't need more social media. If anything, it's uh, it's about whittling, whittling things away, I think. And, and once you start to realize the manipulation behind these things, I mean, there's a reason you know, that everything scrolls, you know, like Instagram scrolls, email scrolls, because they know that if you, if it was only like 10 Instagram pictures per page and you had to click to go to the next page of 10, you were much more likely to be like, I don't want to click again. But if you're scrolling, you're just like a zombie and you're just, you can lose an hour of your life just scrolling. The scroll never stops. And also there's nothing worse than like first thing in the morning or you reach for your phone and they have consciously, you know, Figure out what things are going to pop up. I mean, you can control it, but what's going to pop up in your screen first? And, what? And you know, this guy Tristan Harris is the one who pointed this out to me. That sort of sets the tone for your whole day. Yeah. And if you can avoid that first thing in the morning and actually have the first thing you do be, you know, some meditation or just go to the shower and sort of meditate in the shower while you're showering, that's a much better start to your day than allowing some company, which is trying to sell you some product, to define your day by what information they're going to give so you. So that's your move. When you wake up in the morning, you don't, you're not checking your email or the news ticker or whatever. Uh, in, in, when I'm on weekends, I absolutely don't. I mean, there are some days where, like, I know I got to look at my schedule or I, I do not look at Twitter. I'll look at uh, some websites, um, you know, news aggregate sites, just to kind of get a sense. But, but for the most part, I mean, I'm off the air at 10. I, you know, I'm conscious until 12 or so or 1. So if anything's happened, I, I probably already know about right. it by the time it wakes up. So I don't really have to check in that early in the morning. Anything I should have asked you but didn't? Not really. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm not here to promote anything here. So, um, <laughs> But, you know, I just, uh, um, I mean, I loved your book, and, and I think uh, I love what you're doing. So Thank you. Yeah, Appreciate I wanted it. to talk to you. Thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. Pleasure. Okay, that does it for another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please take a minute to subscribe, rate us. Also, if you want to suggest topics you think we should cover or guests that we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. Importantly, I want to thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, and the rest of the folks here at ABC who helped make this thing possible. We have tons of other podcasts. You can check them out at abcnewspodcasts.com. I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Yeah. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, 
music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. I'm Shimol Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense thing you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost, but now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.